With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We are here today with Lisa Joy and Vincenzo Natali, the executive producers of Amazon's futuristic series, The Peripheral, based on the William Gibson novel. Tell me about getting the property, the William Gibson novel, and what fascinated you guys. Let's start there. Well, it started with my failure because I was trying to adapt Neuromancer, which is William Gibson's very famous uh, first novel, um, into a movie and I just wasn't able to put it together, but I had the very good fortune of working with Jonah and Lisa on Westworld at about the same time that my producing partner and I optioned the book, The Peripheral. Um, and, you know, it was just the question of the planets aligning and they, within the 24 hour period, read it, got back to me, said, we want to do this as our next thing, which just seemed impossibly wonderful to me. And we're true to their words. It was, it was, that was seven years ago, mind you. <laughs> but it's been a wonderful journey. We didn't say when. We said we wanted to do it, and then it just. <laughs> <laughs> Not that, no, that's fast. That's fast, actually. When you think about these Not things, bad. and 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 then a plague in between. So <laughs> um, that's. I think that's pretty lickety split. But you touched on something. He's not the easiest guy to adapt. Can you talk about that and how you guys either kept close to the novel or and when you decided to veer? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it, it's, uh, he's not the easiest guy to adapt um, unless you have Scott Smith there <laughs> doing the writing who is so brilliant as a writer himself. And look, I think sometimes Here's the way Gibson works, right? It's much like a video game. You open page one and it's as though you're Flynn and you've put on the headset and you're in that world and you're already riding a motorcycle and you're already going at hundred miles an hour, right? And the thing is, don't fall off, steady the course, keep driving and just, you will find yourself in a world unlike any you've ever been in. And it's, he doesn't help translate or ease that transition initially because he just wants you to be thrust into that environment. And so if you can um, survive the you know, quick transition into it and give yourself the moment to just learn about the world as it unfolds to you, I actually think that Gibson's books are very um, accessible and engaging, especially because his character work, especially in the peripheral, was so resonant to, to me. And I think it's so real and earthy. Like he's writing about the South. He is from the South, although many people now think he's Canadian. There's something very personal and textured about this. And so I immediately fell, fell in love with the characters. And, you know, the idea was, this is a story of personal transformation. You know, this is a sort of archetypal tale of, you know, 
a singular person against what seems like unsurmountable woes and the community that rallies around her. And from that vantage point, like starting from a place of um, what is personal, I feel like that that was a great thing to hold on to. And Scott just ran with it and created this beautiful textured um, and very relatable world, I think. You and Jonah um, are fascinated. It's, it's, it's no secret. You're fascinated with AI and its impact on the world, good or bad. How did this take it to another level after Westworld? Like what was being, what were some of the themes you were dealing with in AI and Westworld? And how does this take it to a whole other universe? Well, it's funny because I don't really think of this as a show about AI at all. I think about it like, Westworld was definitely, the starting point was, okay, we're, we are dealing with an AI and we're trying to examine human consciousness through the gaze of kind of estranged artificial intelligence, right? That kind of removed eye and perspective. Whereas this is very much the story of, you know, it's kind of a Cinderella story, right? Where there's a girl who's a gamer and an amazing gamer. It's more dealing with a kind of VR quality of tech in that way and how immersive it is. But the problems in Westworld could be almost existential on the nature of good and evil. And I think in terms of Gibson's work, it defies any kind of um, clear meditation on good and evil because all of the characters are motivated by survival, the survival of themselves, their species, the loved one, their loved ones. And it's more a story of individual agency and responsibility, I think. You know, it has, it's in fact, the most human story, right? Because it is all about what can I as a mere human do to change a world that feels overwhelming? Um, and so, whereas a lot of science fiction can feel dystopian, for me, this is a very uplifting, <laughs> I mean, this might say something about me, but it's, uh, it, it's not dystopian in that, it's so relatable and so um, granular in its depictions of the crises that we all face. Look, it's no longer futurism, right? Gibson describes in his novel written several years ago, a series of events that will occur in the future that by the time this comes out have already occurred, right? The apocalypse is not this one thing that obliterates humans and keeps us as you know uh, slaves to some greater force. The apocalypse is a cascading series of events that has happened off screen in the interim that has changed the nature of human existence. And those events, when you disentangle them, are very, very prescient. And now they are no longer futurism. They are in our rearview mirror, right? It's a plague. It is Russian tampering with government. You know, it is economic collapse. It is whatever bee colonies having extinctions, you know, all of these things. And then of course, more after that. And to look at things that are so understandably and so visibly happening or have already happened and to take characters who are so relatable, just everyday people trying to, you know, escape their surroundings filled with longings and also fears. I think somehow disentangling all of these issues and presenting it in such a real way 
it's almost like a roadmap for like, how can one, can one person avoid what seems inevitable? How does one person or one small community of, of no note really outside of their own uh, community, can they actually change um, the force of the future? And, and I think the answer resoundingly within this book, within this series, and frankly, within this world has to be, yes. So what's one of the answers, the reason why I brought up AI is because there, when Flynn goes to London in her avatar, they explain to her, hey, this isn't a time jump. This isn't, this is, it, this is the future, but it's data moving forward is what they specifically, they didn't say, they said it's not time travel. They said it's not time travel. It's data transport. <laughs> but what was interesting was that here we are, we're thinking, okay, everything moves forward. Um, her, you know, but things move backwards as well. And we see that with when the police officer finds, finds the vehicle in the forest, which then we figure out, okay, the, the mercenaries that were against her who came, they were from the future. They were from the future. But that, I, I found that to be a very intriguing, that, that, that was a really intriguing setup. Yeah, and, and it is, you know, the people themselves aren't from the future, but the technology is, right? The idea that, um, you know, when people have thought about time travel before in the, uh, in the understandably like sort of anthropocentric way, we've been like, well, for me to go anywhere in time, I personally would have to go. It would be a beam me up Scotty kind of situation, right? What Gibson does, because um, I think he really thinks about the, the physics of these things so deeply is, okay, look, if time isn't this linear progression as we humans experience it, right? If it doesn't go, past, present, future, if, it, if it's just another dimension, right? Then is it possible for things to travel between point A and point B? And the hypothesis here is physical matter, probably not, or well beyond our means of comprehension on how that would work out, right? But data, pure data, pure information, potentially, right? And so the idea that you know, in the past, you could have, you know, assassins come after you, but their tech, their cars, their weapons, their information is fed to them by the future to know where people might be, to know where you could target them, to know what their choices might be in the future. That's a huge tactical advantage, right? And that's what our team is dealing with in the present in Clanton, you know? And then, you know, for me, the reason why it's not artificial intelligence when they go into the future is because there's nothing artificial about it. What's artificial is the body, is the kind of, you know, human looking wetsuit that they have over their intellect, which is essentially guiding that body, you know? So the intelligence guiding the kind of robot body in the future that looks like their bodies is not artificial. It is organic, real, and based in our characters in Clanton. Vincenzo, can you tell us, you know, the series has such a distinct look and, and feel, you know, given the two different worlds. As the executive producer and director, what were some of the goals you were trying to bring 
on how you were trying to bring this all to life in the in the first episode? Uh, well, it was twofold. One, I was hellbent on bringing William Gibson's vision to the screen because I felt like, although there have been attempts in the past, no one's really succeeded. And there's just a texture to his novels that is so original and specific and exciting um, that uh, I just felt like it had to be done. And then the other thing, my other goal was just to make that um, presented in a way where the audience could ground themselves. Because generally speaking, when you have a time travel story, you start in the present and then you jump off to somewhere else, be it the future or the past or both. But in this case, we're presenting the audience with not one, but two futures. So a, a lot of thought went into, well, how can we posit the audience into Flynn's shoes, understanding that what we're showing them is a time that is close to ours, but is not our time. And I desperately didn't want to confuse them. I desperately wanted to make Flynn and her world and all of her contemporaries, people that we immediately connected with emotionally so that they could become this gateway to the much more exotic world of future London. Um, but I, you know, I think being in the room with Jonah and with Lisa and with Scott was just a massive part of that. Like you can't really disentangle design from narrative. The two, especially in this case where they're, there's just so much interface between the two. And so, you know, it was a little bit of a think tank. And I think Jonah and Lisa with Westworld and other things have been, they're so excellent as you can tell at articulating very uh, complex ideas into a, a, a sentence that makes sense. And it is very simple to comprehend. And, and so I had their guidance throughout as well. It was just a, it was a lovely collaboration. Can you talk about the conversations you had with your production designer and your cinematographer about the rural world of Clanton with its warm, warm tones versus the darker tones that we see in London, the future world of London? You know, it's, I mean, what's so lovely about what's been presented here is two worlds that are completely apart from each other and yet in some bizarre way are a twisted mirror reflection of each other. And, and kind of, uh, and there's a romance occurring be between these two places because okay. each contains something that the other lacks and desires. And, um, and so it was kind of like, you know, casting two lovers <laughs> that, that, that they informed each other and the, and the chemistry between them is really what makes that journey exciting. And so, you know, Clanton was always going to be this sort of tragically sad, beautiful, portrait of uh, America that's gone a little further down the Trump highway. And, um, and then, it, interesting to note, the book was written before Trump was elected, but, um, and then that London was going to be this kind of magical, almost um, museum that is built by technology that is so sophisticated, it's, it's invisible, but which um, adorns itself with all this magnificent neoclassical design and architecture, which is a kind of a reaction to the recovery from this tragic uh, event and, and a kind of a way for that society to psychologically um, heal itself. So it's sort of like this, you know, very European sophisticated, but empty haunted museum. And, and so they're just, they're so different and yet they have connections to each other. And I think that's really what informed everything. And I had amazing production designer, Jan Rolfs, um, amazing uh, costume designer, Michelle Clanton, and all this, like just, I was surrounded by incredible artists. So that just, um, it was all filtered through them. And then we had the good fortune of the kind of being, you know, working with Joan and Lisa, it's like, we do things when things are ready. And I had time 
to sort of think about this stuff and think tank it. And, you know, there was, I had six months of solid work, which was just soft prep in advance of the actual prep, which was really, really helpful. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And Lisa, you know, if there is a motif in your work, it's you know how to redesign a skyline. Okay. <laughs> Whether it's New Orleans or London, I was going to ask, what are the statues and what do they mean in the London skyline here? Seriously, I, I think you have a future as an architect in redesigning <laughs> <laughs> that that's very sweet. I, I think look, you always want to have your world be immersive but also textured and true, right? So for me, you know, I start as a, a storyteller and just kind of imagining, okay, what would happen in that world? Like if you if Miami, if waters rise in Miami, how do people make do? Because we've seen when storms come in New Orleans, people don't just leave, right? They, they have a sense of home and they adjust and adapt and try to survive. So the idea sometimes of, oh, this entire landscape will be obliterated and look completely different, right? I don't think that's realistic. And, and oddly, there's so, I try to embed a certain degree of realism and approaching it from like a human person of like, what would I do if this were my house, right? Like in LA, the corner bodega that's right there has been there the entire time I lived in LA. Meanwhile, giant skyscrapers have also gone up in other parts of the city. So cities evolve and change, but not necessarily whole cloth, right? And so the question is, how do you, depending on the nature of the evolution in the story, evolve the city. And so, you know, in, in this piece, Gibson provided a lot of ideas already because he, I think, does the same thing. He just lives there and builds it from the ground up. And then Vincenzo, who has the most sensual eye of like any director, you know, like every scene is a sex scene. <laughs> it's just, there's a sexy scene of some furniture, there's a sexy building over there. The camera is gliding over and caressing it. Like he is a very, very sensual director. And I've always admired that about his work. And so when tasked with making both London and Clanton, there's something so alluring and inviting about both worlds. And I think, you know, Vincenzo can speak more to this, but also the, the statuary, the beautiful skyline, you know, Joan and I, we, we believe in student practically as much as possible um, because it, it pays off aesthetically and honestly, financially, right? You're not creating a world from whole cloth. Your actors are able to interact with physical objects. And I think viewers can feel the dimensionality and physicality of that space. That being said, in order to create a future skyline, you do have to add elements to it. And the elements that Vincenzo chose 
I think really thematically, you know, I, I think Vincenzo, you should speak about the sort of classicism of it and the nostalgia factor, which I think was very, very important in creating this world. I mean, it comes back to the book because there's air, in the book, there are these sort of monolithic structures, which are air scrubbers that are pulling carbon out of the air in future London. And then somewhere along the line, we had the notion of, well, they would be also ornamental. That, you know, this is a society that is obsessed with aesthetic. And, and so they, they recreate these neoclassical sculptures or, you know, famous works of art like David and so on in, in the um, uh, structure of these buildings. And then I think it was Jonah who suggested, which is an absolutely brilliant notion that the statue, you wouldn't know this, but if you want to look into kind of the thinking behind it, um, uh, the statues are made of carbon. They're being built out of the carbon that has been pulled from uh, the atmosphere. So that, that's how I mean, it was like a really lovely collaboration. And I, and I, Jonah and Lisa have this, you know, well, they just didn't know a lot about evolving technology. And they always have a very informed opinion. Who are the statues? <laughs> there's a Venus de Milo, there's a Venus de Milo, there's a, a, you know, a number of, of recognizable statues. And, um, but I think, you know, being a bit of a sci-fi geek can be very, aware of the history of futurism in cinema, I was eager to do something that I felt was apart from what we're typically used to seeing, which generally follows the Blade Runner paradigm of an overcrowded city with just a lot of stuff, which is a, a absolutely brilliant vision of the future, but it's so brilliant that it's kind of dominated science fiction movies for the last 40 years. And, and we, we went decided to go in the opposite direction. That we would be very subtractive. We'd pull things away. And as Lisa said, use the city let London play its London, and then just change a few elements, a few key elements that in a weird way are more impactful than if you just like crammed it with a lot of CGI. Um, Lisa, uh, the first two episodes dropped, and I'm just seeing if you, maybe you could tease just a little without, you know, tease, is, tease what you can. Um, the woman that Flynn is looking for in the future, is this the MacGuffin that's gonna pull pull us through the series or is this just one step to another like is this is this the writing arc of the series she's going to be trying to find this woman that they want her to find it's certainly the inciting incident right mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. look i think this setup for it is something very relatable that will become even more relatable as gaming technologies improve and vr tech proliferates, right? Um, uh, Flynn Fisher is a gamer, you know? And this actually exists where you can play games right now and get money for wealthy people who wanna level up, but do not have the skills to level up in that game. There's actually like a little market where you can earn money doing that. And part of what's also relatable is that Flynn Fisher plays under her brother's sort of um, code name because people assume this sweet little blonde girl wouldn't be such a terror in VR. And she's great. She's an excellent gamer, right? And so excellent, in fact, that she tries to stay away from it because she wants to try to invest in this world, you know, in, 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 in not just, you know, the equivalent is, is we're always online. We're always, you know, looking at Instagram instead of maybe turning to the person next to us and engaging. And she's trying to fight that pull. But economic necessity dictates that she logs in when she gets a job offer she can't refuse. And she's doing it for her family. 
to get medicine for her mom, to support herself and you know the people she loves. And she's sucked into a game that is better than any she's ever been in. It's London, but unlike she's ever seen it. And this is a girl who hasn't ever traveled like that. You know, she lives in the South, you know, they aren't rich. And so the idea of being able to explore a world so freely is intoxicating. The idea of not having to put on her forever fab work clothes, but being given this awesome cloak and, you know, perfect appearance is, is beguiling. It's a Cinderella story that honestly playing video games does give you like Instagram filters do give you, you're creating an avatar that's you, but better. So we all know the intoxication of that pull. The difference is her world is real and the danger is real. And she's jettisoned onto this adventure to bridge the timelines between where she's at now and where the world is going and to try to save herself and the world at large. So Mr. Pickett, I mean, I was shocked that he wasn't going to take the offer to hunt them down. Uh, why is that? I, I, I mean, <laughs> all of a sudden he was a man of principle. Like I, I thought that like when they offered him all that money to hunt them down. I'm like, okay, this is great. He's going to do it. But then he was like, oh, get away. <laughs> I was. Well, I mean, these are spoilers, so we can't, but Burton provides pretty good disincentive for going up against it. Um, and also I think if you are embroiled in that much illegality, you know, you're the government sting operations. Like he thinks that it's, it's, he's being set up. Right. And, and they're just trying to get him. So he's proceeding with caution and lying in wait and trying to find the best angle for himself. And the question, you know, will he succeed or will will our characters kind of one up him? Season two, or we don't know yet. That we would need a peripheral machine of our own to know if we have <laughs> really hope so. And if we don't, then I'm going to want to go into the future and create a stub where I do have a season two so that I at least can watch what happens. Westworld season five, any more clarity on whether there will be one or not? Again, I'm going to need that peripheral machine. Look, all I can say is I love the show. I'm so honored to have the collaborators that I have. I always want to see more. There's more to be seen. Um, but I'm also, you know, this is the thing. You control what you can control. You know, the only thing that I can do is love and rejoice in every moment that I'm allowed to do the crazy job that is such an honor to participate in that I have. And so I am, uh, I just stay in the present moment with that stuff and hope it turns my way. What's, what's the next, what's next for you? What are you currently prepping? Well, uh, I'm producing an episode by this director that I really like called Jonathan Nolan, <laughs> based on a small little video game franchise called Fallout. Uh, so that is happening right now. And then um, there's a couple more things on uh, down the pipe, uh, but I'm not sure I'm allowed to talk about them yet, but I'm, I'm excited. And they're not all sci-fi, which, uh, which is interesting, but they are all ginormous landscapes this this is the thing i can't i can't resist the pull of a ginormous you know world creation opportunity <laughs> 
Lisa and Vincenzo, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.